Welcome to Book Talk with Kara Putman. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Kara Putman, the award-winning, best-selling author of more than 30 novels. I write romantic legal suspense and World War II romance, but I read voraciously. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of my favorite author friends as we talk books, writing, and life. Be sure to check back frequently for new episodes. Hello, everyone. It is Monday, and or actually it's Tuesday, and today I have a special edition of Book Talk with my friends Kelly Stewart and Joanna Politano, um, and I'm excited to introduce y'all to Kelly and have Joanna back because these two ladies both write international historical romance, although Kelly also writes kind of split time, dual time novels as well, and I love both of their books. Joanna has the most beautiful lyrical writing of just about any author out there today. And then, yeah, I love it. It's just, it's so atmospheric and I really feel dropped into your worlds in England. And then Kelly wrote in the Master Craftsman, I felt like I was in the middle of like this national treasure slash historical novel, which I always think takes, would take a lot of work. So Joanna, we'll start with you. Would you like to introduce yourself quickly? Sure. I'm Joanna Politano. I write uh, mostly uh, English-based historical mysteries with a little bit of romance. Uh, it's a lot of kind of a Dickens flair um, with a, maybe a little bit of Jane Austen in the romance area. And I have just, I'm just about to release my sixth book with Ravel. And you just signed a contract. I did. <laughs> yes. So congratulations on that. Thank Kelly, you. can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm Kelly Stewart, and I write historical fiction, and like you said, my, my newest release was a split time, um, but mine is mostly set in the former Soviet Union. My first book was set in World War II Soviet Ukraine. Uh, my latest release was uh, a dual timeline treasure hunt following Peter Carl Fabergé and the creation of a mystery Fabergé Easter egg and led, leads readers right up to the Russian Revolution, so that's sort of my sweet spot right now. And I love that because um, I think when we think about the world, especially as it's existing today, Russia has definitely popped right back to the top of everybody's watching it. But if you don't understand the history of where that country and that region has come from, it makes it really difficult to understand kind of the climate of what's happening today, especially between Ukraine and Russia. So why has that become an area that you're really interested in and that you're investing all of your creative energy into? Well, my, my background is there. So I studied in Ukraine. I, I, I minored in the Russian language. Um, I have dear friends in Ukraine. And so when I lived in Ukraine and was studying there, I met a woman who, she was actually the grandmother of the, of the people I was living with. And she had survived a Nazi slave labor camp in World War II. And, and her story was just so fascinating. And, and I just grew sort of enamored with the World War II history of Ukraine because we just don't hear much about it. We don't know a lot about it. And so um, after I graduated college, I went back to Ukraine and I toured the country and just spoke to veterans and got their stories. So my first novel was based on these true stories from these World War II veterans. And, um, and it's just always been, I've just always been fascinated with the history of the former Soviet Union. And so I've, I've just sort of settled in, in studying it. And, and for a long time, it felt difficult to write about it because it felt like nobody cares about the former Soviet Union. Nobody knew who, you know, what Ukraine was or where it was. 
And, um, but now, you know, it's, it's been kind of fun to be able to say, I've spent the last 25 years of my life studying the history of these two countries. And so I, I understand the past and the intertwining histories and the narratives and what's happening. And so it's been fun to be able to bring their history to life through story now that people are, are more aware of what, who they are and what they're doing. And I love that because travel often will do that for us. It creates kind of this love and fascination with a part of the world or a people group that we may just not have been exposed to before. So Joanna, with your books, they are set in England. How did you fall yes. in love with England and decide that's where you were going to invest your creative energy? Um, honestly, when I was a kid, all the books that I fell in love with were written in England and um, my family is from England as well. So I felt sort of at home reading about those people and the history. And I just got so fascinated. I actually did um, a little bit of family studying when I was in high school and I traced our ancestry back and stuff like that. So I was very interested in the locations and some of the families and the houses um, and things like that. And I have lived in, um, in Africa for a little while. There's like a British colony and mm -hmm. things like that. And that just sort of expanded my mind to, I don't know, just think differently than just an American child mindset, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I just, I love studying other cultures who are similar to us, but have a lot of little subtle differences and things like that. And uh, then I got to visit the UK a few times, Scotland, Ireland, and England, and you know, a couple other surrounding areas. And um, I really just, I fell in love with everything there. It's so beautiful. And I love hearing family stories. That's just what captivates me so much. So have any of those family stories gotten kind of woven in to your novels? Uh, my family, not quite, not very much. Cause I don't, I don't know a whole lot of the stories behind my family being there. But when I went there, I would talk to families or people who live there now and get their family stories and their ancestry. And, you know, I'd, I'd go to a castle and I'd walk across the street and I'd talk to the people who have lived there for like five generations and say, you know, tell me what really went on that's not going to be in the tours. And that's the stuff that ended up in my books because they were so authentic and just, I don't know, so, so intriguing for me. I love that question. Okay, so tell me what doesn't make it into the history books, because that really is, it's in those little spaces that we do mm -hmm. find those nuggets. And I think that that's mm -hmm. so important. And I love how for each of you, part of your love for it came from talking with people, talking with people who were there, because I'll never forget taking our kids to Germany and sitting with a, a host family who've become friends where we had no idea at the time, but she was one of the first people, she's my age. She was one of the first people pushed up on the wall the night it fell in Berlin. Wow. And you know, her talking about seeing the East German military looking at her and going, well, if they don't kill me, my mom's gonna kill me. And I'm like, those are the kinds of things that we don't always think about when we just see the photo on the front cover of the newspaper or we're reading the history book. So tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about your latest novels. And Joanna, we'll start with you. It's a midnight dance. And how did you get the inspiration for this book? Honestly, this was all my daughter's doing. So she, since she was about three or four years old, she's been fascinated by ballet. She's walked around on her toes. She just like spontaneously spins into dances and things like that. I am so uncoordinated. I am just not built as a ballerina at all. Um, and I'm not tall or anything like that. So it's just, 
not part of my background. And I really wanted to connect with her in something that she was fascinated by. Instead of just dragging her into something I enjoyed, um, I wanted to help pursue something that she loved so much. So I started taking her to live ballet. And I went to the first one with her when she was four and I was completely floored. Just like, you don't think of ballet as necessarily being hard work, but like when we saw them backstage, they were like, drenched in sweat and just so out of breath. And I was just like, wow, this is the sport, you know? Mm -hmm. And when I started researching the history of ballet, it was completely different than we understand the ballet to be now. And so I was going from scratch, knowing nothing, but loved the research. I spent a lot of time researching it and uh, actually helped, my daughter helped me come up with some of the storyline and some of the twists. She's now eight. So she's a little bit more, she's really into storytelling as well. Uh, so really, it was it was a great connection point for the two of us all the way through. I love that. I love how you pulled her in. And um, regardless of the age, you know, she was able to be part of it. And it's something that y'all will always have as a connection now. That's so sweet. Mm -hmm. So Kelly, out of all of Russian history, why Fabergé? <laughs> well, I'm... I've been a part of the uh, a, a group called the Russian Heritage Society here in Tampa. I live in Tampa and St. Petersburg, Florida is considered a sister city to St. Petersburg, Russia. And so they're always doing some of these events around these things. And um, so I was, I, I follow them on Facebook and I'd been to several of their events. And, and one day someone posted on Facebook, this article that I clicked on it because I thought it was actually it would probably have been interesting to you, Joanna, because it was all about like, a crown that one of the British royals wore to her wedding. It was like one of the cousins that got married a couple of years ago. And, but the crown had been worn by, I think Alexandra Romanoff. I can't remember, but there was some like connection to Romanoff, which is why I clicked on the link. And buried in the middle of the article was this sort of like, throwaway paragraph about the wealth of the Romanovs and the fabric, the imperial Fabergé eggs and how um, so many of them disappeared during the Russian Revolution and out of the 52 that Fabergé created only 41 have been recovered and then it talked about like the most recent one that had been recovered was in 2015 by a scrap metal dealer in the Midwest who bought what he thought was a hunk of gold and he was just going to melt it down and sell it. And as he was cleaning it up, realized he had something much more valuable on his hands. And it turned out he had one of the missing Fabergé eggs and he sold it to a museum in London for $33 million. And I was like, what? <laughs> there's, there's eggs out there. And so that just was like, that was the catalyst for like, what if there are more? What if, what if Fabergé created a mystery egg that he never told anyone about? Let's, let's go looking for that. So that was, that was just, you know, the little nugget that you need to, to launch from. I love it. I and love so many, I don't know about you, but so many of my stories come that way. It's a headline here and a headline there and you put them together and you twist and you get a whole new book or that conversation what didn't make it to history books or that throwaway paragraph where you're like oh my gosh there's a story here what if and off you go but I'm still hung up on the he was going to melt it down because he thought it was just a lump of gold I mean it, it makes me think so much of like those stories where someone buys a print at a garage sale because they just want the frame and they take it apart and there's an original copy of the Declaration of Independence. And I'm like, I get to find one of those. Exactly. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Exactly. It never happens to me, ever. I know. I'm like, um, lightning. 
I, I would take that kind of lightning right now. That'd be amazing. <laughs> so we've talked about, you know, where you got your ideas. Are you more of a plotzer or a pantser? Because I think with um, historical, it can be kind of dangerous. Although you're now both going to tell me you're pantsers. It can be a little scary if you're a pantser. Because even though I'm kind of a plotter, this novella I'm writing, I'm having to rewrite a lot of it because I thought I had it in the right month. And then I realized, nope, I got to move it because mm -hmm. I learned more. So which which bucket do you fall into? Are you kind of hybrid? Uh, Joanna, do you want to start? Um, sure. I, I really want to be a plotter really badly because I, I feel like my life would be so much easier. Um, but the only book that I tried to plot was a miserable failure. I spent like three or four months making a very detailed, beautiful, thorough outline that I thought the book would be so quick to write. And I got like two chapters into writing it. And I was like, this feels awful. It's so unnatural and it doesn't work. It's really cheesy. And it's not like an organic unfolding of a story. So I checked it and I had to start over with my whole story. And so ever since that, I, I will kind of just uh, go until I get stuck. And then I'll sort of plot like I'll just like free form a bunch of ideas and kind of come up with a plot for the next few scenes and then I'll keep going until I get stuck again and yeah so that's about as as plotting as I get is you know just working ahead a little bit but that's I don't awesome. know how to write a story organically without doing it just by the seat of my pants unfortunately <laughs> but it sounds like you do lots of research at the beginning so that you're you're already yeah. kind of immersed in the the culture, uh, in this case of LA, plus you are you write in England, so you kind of know what's going on there. So it makes sense that mm -hmm. in, a, in some ways you could just kind of pants your way through it because you've got all this research behind you. Kelly, how do you yeah. do it? I'm very similar to Joanna. I, I, I get so overwhelmed with plotting and I feel like it would take me so long and then I and then I find myself frustrated like I could just be writing instead of like making this outline so I I try to I mean I because it's historical there's there is a lot of research involved so I, I try to do all the research that I can so I have a real sense of who the characters are you know what the time frame is how they would have lived and spoken and that sort of thing um and then I, I almost always know like this is where the story is going to begin and this is where I want it to end. And it's mm -hmm. in the middle that it gets muddy um, and, you know, similar to Joy and I will, I will find myself getting stuck. And sometimes it's as simple as like just walk away for a few days and let my brain kind of work it out. And other times I, I have to do a little bit more research or I have to like really sit down and like hammer some some details out but for the most part I, I do struggle with the the plotting as well it's just easier for me to to know where I'm going to go know where I want to take them and then kind of see how it unfolds from there yeah, and I yeah. can't get you in trouble though on my first novel I did end up like I was probably 65,000 words in and realized this book is going to be 200,000 words long if I don't do something right now. And I had to like cut out an entire storyline. Like I was trying to tell way too many stories. So it, it can get you in trouble sometimes. Well, and then that storyline you cut either becomes a freebie for your readers or it becomes a second book. Yeah. You know, you just, you never throw it away because there's right. always something, some way you can salvage it. So with all the research, and I was mentioning to this y'all before we hopped on that you know, I'm writing a couple of World War II novellas now and oh my gosh, it's been a few years and I'd forgotten how much extra research goes into historical, even though I only write World War II because I know that time period and I want to kind of stay in my lane, I guess. 
there's so much research. So what's the most random thing you've had to research for one of your books? And Kelly, I'll start with you on this one. So last August, I, I released a book that was a little bit different for me in that it wasn't set. It was set in turn of the century United States, and it was a circus novel. But my two main characters were Russia, and that was how I, I kind of tied it all in. We're from Russia. But um, the, the whole, all of the main characters in the book were circus freaks in a turn of the century circus. And so um, I spent months studying circus freaks and it was very interesting and kind of dark. And it's a part of history that I'm not sure that we should be proud of, but it happened. And so it was it was kind of fascinating to, to study and learn that part of the circus history. Wow, yeah, that would be interesting. How about you, Joanna? Uh, I think, well, I think one of my favorite parts of researching the ballet book, I didn't even get to use it, but they had the ability to do like a ghost effect on the stage. And it was so cool because this is like 1830s uh, London and they had like mirrors and lights and they could project a person up on the stage where they were below stage. They weren't even up there, but they could walk around like they were a ghost. And I loved that idea. I so badly wanted someone to do that to the heroine, but and to, you know, rattle her a little bit, but it just, the story got too long. But it was really fun to read how they did that and just think about like how brilliant they were, you know, even with like gaslighting and some very rudimentary type of lighting systems, they could have a ghost projected on the stage. That's cool. crazy. Because I think sometimes we kind of default to, oh, we live in the modern era now. This is where we have all the cool bells and whistles. <laughs> So to find something like that would have been cool. And I think that's one of the tricks of research is we find out all these really cool details. And we're like, oh, it'd be so cool to add this and add that. And then you've got a 200,000 word novel. How do you know <laughs> what to add in and what's just kind of cool and you'll just have to hang on to it because it just doesn't serve the characters in the story. Joanna, I'll start with you on that one. Oh, I try to shoehorn so much in there. Because especially when I research, I find out just the coolest, most random bits of information that like fit really well into the storyline. But then as a whole, if anything can be removed, it kind of should. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, I have a lot in there. And then as I go, I keep go back and I reread when I get stuck. And I just take out anything that is, you know, not supporting the plot, like a table leg or something, you know, anything that can get chopped unfortunately and so I tried to save some of those for like um little extra blog posts or interesting things like that but it always makes me makes it a little easier to cut when you know you can still use them yeah absolutely how about you Kelly how do you know when it's time to stop or that just doesn't serve the story I mean, I would say probably somewhat similar. I try to, I, I use what I like to call the Stephen King method of writing and that I try to just write, 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 dump as much as I can in and then edit on the back end after I finished. I try not to spend too much time stopping and editing and, you know, just wasting time. Um, but I, I am similar. I really like to throw in like the really little interesting details that people might not know about that make the story so much more real. And even in like the, the 
well, the master craftsman and my first novel, like a river from its course, like I, I put in characters who were real people, you know, even just like ancillary, like the general who has one or two lines, but he was really a general in Kiev in 1942. And, you know, so just little things that like, a reader, unless they stop and they they research every detail, probably won't pick up, but it, it makes it feel more believable for me and more organic. And so, but similar, you know, there there are also details that I know, as, even as I'm writing them, I know I'm going to have to cut this, but there's something satisfying about putting it in that first draft and then That's knowing true. that you have it for later. <laughs> yeah, I like that. You know, there is, sometimes we do have to do those things just because they satisfy us as the author. And then we can always take it out. And I have learned the hard way, hang on to everything because you never know when you might need to put it back in later. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe you cut too much or you can always use it for marketing or you know, in some other way. Um, like one of the random things I have had to research in the last week was when did electricity hit a particular island on the Outer Banks of North Carolina? And I found conflicting answers. And I was like, oh, this is a generator. And this was actual power lines, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm just oh, like, interesting. yeah, I was like, this is so weird. But in 1937, 1938, they had two generators that served the tiny community, but they didn't get actual power lines till like 47. And so you're wow. like, well, I'm just gonna make it clear that there were generators here. And I'm gonna pretend that there weren't outhouses because <laughs> I don't write 1800s, you know? And so <laughs> but there's all those kinds of details that you're right, they totally plant you in. And then making a decision on, do you include this real person or not that real person and kind of fictionalize them? And all of it comes back to what's gonna best serve the story and the other characters around it. But as the person who loves history, I love it when I run across a real person in the story because then I'm like, oh, I know that's real. Or when you get to the end in the author note. So how much do you put into your author note? For, you know, the readers like me who are like, okay, how much of this is real and how much is fictional? Joanna. Um, I don't know. I, I'm starting to use my author notes a little bit more, um, but a lot of the, the times that I put in real people, it's something that, you know, nobody has ever heard this name before, but I yeah. do like to kind of mention, hey, this was a real person. Um, and I put anytime I take a liberty, a, you know, literary license or anything like that, um, there's one character whose name was Frederick Kill Halford. And I was like, that's a really strange name. So I took out the kill <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it was just really strange. So um, I definitely write that stuff. And then I try really hard to honor the real person and cite, you know, this is what they accomplished. This is what they contributed. Uh, like in music therapy is one thing I'm researching right now. This is what they contributed to music therapy. They did this really incredible thing. And uh, I don't know, I just, I think that's so interesting. Like I read all the author's notes. Mm -hmm. And I love putting all the pieces together and getting a behind the scenes look. I do too. And Kelly, yours in the Master Craftsman, it was awesome because you went through and you talked about the eggs and here's where I took license and here's what we don't know. And so how did you decide what was going to go in and what part you would just kind of let readers figure out on their own if they were interested? Some of it was decided for me because I was already over word count. So my author's note couldn't be too long. Um, so, you know, cause I would love to explain everything um, and really show the reader like in this part, this is what I learned. And in this part, this is what I brought to the table. But um, I do, I mean, similar, I want, I want to let 
people know as far as the real people who they may really have been um, and where I might have taken creative license. It's funny, like a couple of the criticisms that I've had for master craftsmen have been, um, you know, people frustrated that all the characters' names start with A. And I didn't really think about it at the time, but it's true. Like there was a lot of A names and, but like 99.9% .9 of those A names were real people. I was like, well, I, I can't help it that they all named <laughs> something that started with an A, <laughs> you know? Um, but, you know, and so like, I kind of wish I would have included that little detail in the author's note, like, hey, I know there's a lot of A names. Like, These were real yeah. people. I didn't want to change their names, but yeah, I just try, I, I want to I lead the readers to the interesting little nuggets that maybe they, would, they wouldn't have picked up it on. And I just want to like, I kind of want to show them the Easter eggs a little bit, um, but maybe not give away everything. So it's always a challenge. Yeah, and I think that that's, as a reader, I love when I'm reading historical fiction and there's enough that I can go, okay, the author did their research and they're pulling back a bit of the curtain to show me here's what was real, here's where I took that license. And that makes me love the story even more. And so I think, but there's an art to it, you're right, of trying to figure out what do we include? What don't we include? We don't wanna give away the whole store, but we want people to know that, hey, this is actually based on real events and real people, but there's also mm -hmm. that part where the imagination takes off and that's why this is fiction and not nonfiction. So I think that's always the challenge. So we're gonna enter a few questions that might be a little faster, maybe not, we'll see. But if you could spend a day with a popular author, living or dead, who would you pick, Kelly? C.S. Lewis. Oh, like, yes. Seriously, I would just, I would ask him all the questions I could ask. I mean, a funny story, I'm actually friends with his stepson, Douglas Gresham, and every once in a while, I try to just like, just one more little question. I, what, what, what would he have said in this situation? What do you think? How do you think he would feel about this? But I just, I, I would love to sit and have a cup of tea with him and just let him tell stories. Oh, that would be amazing. I'm listening, listening to the Narnian right now. And the kids and I are going to listen to the Chronicles of Narnia again on a trip that's coming up. And every time I listen to this, I'm just amazed again and astounded by the creativity and the way he tells such a simple story, but yet there's so many layers to it. Like unfair, the way that he was able to like write complex truth in such simplicity and beauty. It's just, oh, I love it. Yeah. Oh, that would be an amazing conversation. How about you, Joanna? Yes, Lewis is actually one of the first names that popped into my head too. I would add Madeline Lingle, I think. Yes. She's just... She has like a very subtle brilliance. I've read some of her nonfiction work and also some of her fiction. And just, she seems like her language is a little bit more straightforward, but my goodness, the depth in her words is amazing. Yeah, and it's, I, I love the two that you've pointed out because when I read books like theirs, I'm always challenged to how can I make mine better? Mm -hmm. And I love that. And, oh, then, yeah. and they're just such deep thinkers on so many levels. Because you're right, they both wrote fiction and nonfiction and were big thinkers. And mm -hmm. then they both wrote sci-fi sci and fantasy. Right. <laughs> so, you know, that takes a certain True. level of brilliance that I don't think I possess just True. right there. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah, really it was so good. They could almost do whatever they wanted and it would be fine. You know, yeah. <laughs> it would be good. Yeah. And we would read it and we would enjoy it. So um, when you're on, when you're on deadline, how much time do you spend on writing? Kelly. Ooh, um, <laughs> I, 
I try not to get myself into too much of a crunch, but also have recognized that I work better under pressure. <laughs> so it's yeah. like finding that balance where like, I don't procrastinate too long where it's a very stressful situation, but also recognizing that if I have like nine months, I'm really going to wait till like I have four or five months before, I go <laughs> yeah. in, you know, yeah. um, but I do, I mean, you know, right now it's summertime and I can barely complete a, a sentence in my head, much less sit down and find time to write uh, with all the kids home. So when the kids are at school, I have just like a very good routine where like I get them off to school, I exercise, and then I try and put aside two or three hours and I work. And when I'm on deadline, if I can get, if I can get two or three hours, three or four days a week, I can get stuff done pretty quickly. Um, so that's kind of how I operate. And Joanna, you have younger kids and you homeschool. So how do you find yes. time for writing? Um, I, I would say deadline time is not that different than the rest of the year, just because I have a very fixed schedule that, that I try to stick to. Um, I try to commit to like my kids and just being very, very present um, most of the day. And so my, I have a nine month old and when he naps in the afternoon, I have my kids doing some independent work for their homeschooling. And that's quiet time. And that's when I sit down and write. And when I get up in the morning, if I beat them up, then, you know, if I wake up before them, I will sit and do my Bible time and then dive right into some research or something. Um, and it, I kind of hold my schedule loosely because things just shift and change all the time. There's somebody who's sick or somebody who needs some extra attention and that's fine. And I found that I don't get stressed if my expectations are just like very open-handed. Yeah, I which is kind of what you have to do when you're a working mom. Like you just yeah. hold it loosely and do the best. And my husband is also very gracious. Like he recognizes when maybe life has taken it, the turns that it takes and <laughs> I haven't had the time that I need. And he'll send me away for like a weekend or a night, just a night away. And, and I can usually get a lot done in 24 hours when I know I, okay, I have 24 hours by myself and I can dig my heels in and get a lot done. So a lot of my books are written that way too. That's mm -hmm. awesome. And it makes such a difference when our spouses are supportive like that. And one of the things I really admire about you, Joanna, is how you are so focused on, this is a unique time in my life. My kids are going to be my priority and I'll write around that. I wish I'd done a little more of that um, because with the homeschooling and teaching and writing, I was always present, but I don't think I was present in yeah. the mm -hmm. same way. And so I really, really respect that about you and just want to encourage you keep doing it. You're doing awesome. So Thank you. how do you celebrate when you finish a book? Joanna. And I, I don't do this. Out for ice, cream. Cream. <laughs> ice cream. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. There's usually a bunch of local friends and their kids and my kids. And we all just go out for a bunch of ice cream because it's usually summer. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Uh, Kelly, do you have any way that you recognize the end of a book? I don't think so. I, I, I'm usually just like, I take a nap or something. <laughs> I know my friend, Allie Plyder, she would always go get a Pandora charm and she would add it to a bracelet. And I was like, that's so cool. But I already had like 10 books out when I heard that. And I'm like, that would be so crazy expensive to go back and get all of them now. But I was like, oh, I need to do something to recognize, cause I just, I tend to go, okay, and now there's the next and mm -hmm. let's get that done. Um, so last question, does writing energize or exhaust you? Kelly. 
Oh, it energizes me. Like writing does not feel like work to me. I just, I love it. And that's why when I have downtime or when I can escape for 24 hours, like that's what I want to do. I don't, I don't need to do anything else. So it's definitely energizing for me. It's like free therapy. That's awesome. <laughs> that's a great, a great way to put it. Free therapy. Um, it's definitely both for me. It's kind of, um, it's kind of like going to a writing conference and you get so hyped up and excited and you love talking to all the other writers and things like that. But then you go back to your room at night and you crash. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like that. Like, I love when the pieces of the story fit together. I love it when I feel like God is unfolding some like missing piece. Um, I don't know, just finding some new research or some depth that I didn't know was there in the first draft or something. Um, but then when I get done writing, I'm so drained that I don't want to think very deeply. <laughs> yeah. So I usually, you know, round up my kids and we go to the playground and just do silly things. And, you know, it makes a nice balance for the rest of my life. <laughs> that, yeah. that is true. I was telling Kara before we started that, like, I, I had three books released last year. And so right now I'm just like tired. I just don't, <laughs> I don't have any ideas and I don't have anything that I'm ready to just jump into yet. And I think my brain is just like, Hey, calm down, take a break a little while. <laughs> yes. You know, and it's so true. And then you find that idea and mm -hmm. the energy starts going and your brain starts firing. And I've learned mm -hmm. that to push it. I'm still, my husband would tell you, I'm still not good at that. Cause I'm like, I need to be writing. I need to be writing, but finding that idea and just giving myself the space to be like, okay, I need just to let my mind go and focus on something else for a while. And so, cause there are, there's cycles to it. And it's really exhausting when you're writing a lot. It can be, it's just mentally draining. So mm -hmm. well, thank you both so much for being with me today. I love your books. And so it's great to be able to share you with people who like to listen to book talk. So thank you so much. Thank well, you. thanks, Kara. It was fun. If you enjoyed this conversation, remember you can join us live on my Facebook page on Tuesday evenings at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for the next conversation. I'd also be grateful if you'd leave a review on your favorite platform. I love to hear from you, so be sure to leave a comment on this episode's show page at karaputman.com, and you can also interact with me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And don't forget, when you join my e-newsletter, I send you a copy of Dying for Love, the novella that launches the Hidden Justice series, as my gift to you. Thanks again for tuning in. Thank you.